Welcome back to Season 7, Episode 18 of Your Brain at Work podcast. In this week's episode, we'll explore the deeper neuroscience of empathy and the role it plays in making organizations run effectively. Our special guest is the author of the recent national book release, The Man Who Broke Capitalism, How Jack Welch Gutted the Heartland and Crushed the Soul of Corporate America, and How to Undo His Legacy. In this discussion, we will dive into how a generation of leaders may have lost their empathetic way and what we can do to correct course. I'm Shelby Wilburn, and you're listening to Your Brain at Work from the Neuroleadership Institute. We continue to draw episodes from our weekly Friday webinar series. This week, our show is a conversation between Dr. David Rock, co-founder and CEO of the Neuroleadership Institute, and David Gellis, columnist for the New York Times. Enjoy. Hello to all of our viewers across the world, and welcome back to another week of Your Brain at Work Live. I'm your host, Shelby Wilburn. In this week's episode, we are diving into the neuroscience of empathy and the role it plays in making organizations run effectively. We will also be joined by a special guest author who recently released a new book for a conversation about how a generation of leaders strayed from empathy and how we can do to correct course. Now, before we get into that, we're sending a big hello out to our audience today, our registered Zoom participants, as well as our friends streaming across our social platforms. For our regulars, it's also great to have you back. For those of you that are new to your Brain at Work Live, welcome to the party. For some context, it is the title of one of the best-selling books by our CEO and co-founder, Dr. David Rock, and it's also the name of our blog and podcast. Now, as we're about to kick off, stretch, grab some coffee, get settled in as we get ready to dive into this topic for the next hour. So let's introduce our speakers for today. Our guest for today is the author of the new book titled The Man Who Broke Capitalism, How Jack Welch Gutted the Heartland and Crushed the Soul of Corporate America and How to Undo His Legacy. He is currently a reporter for the New York Times, where he writes about business and climate change. He has also been meditating for 20 years and is the author of Mindful Work, How Meditation is Changing Business from the Inside Out, as well as additional guides and columns about meditation for the times. Please join us in welcoming David Gellis. David, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. And an Aussie turned New Yorker who coined the term neuroleadership when he co-founded NLI over two decades ago. With a professional doctorate, four successful books under his name, and a multitude of bylines ranging from the Harvard Business Review to the New York Times, and many more, a warm welcome to our co-founder and CEO of the Neuroleadership Institute, Dr. David Rock. David, great to have you back and passing it over to you. Thanks, Shelby. Great to be back. And thanks to the team have been running some fantastic sessions. The last few weeks have been some great sessions I've heard. David, great to connect with you. You know, when we look at our kind of history and interests, it looks like, you know, we've been friends for years, but we've hardly ever had a chance to cross paths. I know you spoke at our summit a few years ago, and I know we're both long-term meditators. I started when I was about 15, both writing a lot, you know, passionate about humans issues in organizations and the world and all sorts of stuff but we just we haven't had a chance much to connect so i'm delighted to have a conversation with you congrats on your book most thank you so much i mean let's dig in you know when i saw this when this kind of hit my desk i was like wow that's that's like quite a statement the man who broke capitalism and you know crushing the soul of corporate america like like you know, for the uneducated about this man and this kind of change, you know, give us the cliff notes of kind of what happened. What did he do? Let's start there first of all. Yeah, well, first maybe I'll just even start with some level setting. A lot of people don't know who Jack Welch was. 
And it's important to just have the facts on the table. So Jack Welch was the chief executive of General Electric, big United States conglomerate, from 1981 to 2001. And during that time, he not only changed General Electric and the way this company operated, but he was so powerful, so influential for reasons I hope we can talk about, that he effectively wound up redefining what it meant to be an American company, resetting the perspectives, the values of other chief executives. And ultimately, through that force and through the ripple effects of all those actions over the course of decades and years, really reshaping our economy in ways that make the world in which we all live in and operate in and work in today really look quite different than the way it did before he was CEO. Interesting. So, I've been to Crotonville, the kind of famous mm-hmm. learning center that he built, and there's a whole lot of stories out there about you know him and what they call the pit you know, with these management programs and, you know, and I've been out there, there's this whole kind of heritage of developing leaders. And I think one of their goals was to develop leadership skills in his kind of mold and then have these people go out and run their organizations, but also go out and run lots of other organizations. I know that that GE was a training ground, like places like Bank of America and in another world, McDonald's, like, you know, these places are like training grounds for, you know, legions of people. So I can see how he's influenced. But 20 years is a long time for a CEO these days. What's the average CEO tenure now? Like five or six at best. It's, it's, it's a long time. How did he stay there for 20 years? What was, what was his secret, you think? Well, we've got to give him credit where credit's due. He was enormously successful for much of his run. If you measure success by increasing shareholder value. And that, of course, is right at the heart of the big you know, central thesis of the book, which is that he reshaped the priorities of corporate America, and really embraced this shareholder-first ideology that was maybe first articulated by men like Milton Friedman, but really, I argue, first put into practice by Welch himself. And during that time, listen, he took GE from a market capitalization of $14 billion or so when he took over to $600 billion at its peak just before he retired. And so you ask why he stayed in power is because he was making a lot of money for himself, for other investors, for shareholders. But the long-term consequences of how he did that are what I think we as a society are still reckoning with today and which GE is still reckoning with itself. Just last year, the company announced that it was going to break itself up once and for all into three separate companies as sort of a final repudiation of his vision. Yeah, interesting. So tell me, what were the, like, if we had to simplify it to maybe three things, two or three things, what are the, the kind of themes that he was driving that, that changed America? How, how did he crush the soul of corporate America? What were the sort of two or three big things that he really did? Yeah, well, I hope we can talk more about what it means to have a soul when we're talking about corporate America. We can come back to that. But the way in which he did it, listen, I identify three main tactics he used in this quest to promote what I call Welchism, which is the word I use to describe this relentless pursuit of shareholder value, the single-minded pursuit of corporate profits at any cost, and the mannerism in which he did it, which we need to talk about as well, especially in this context, which was this very aggressive, unempathetic, bullying, 
materialistic alpha male style of management, which he embodied and which still a lot of people think is sort of the default mode of CEOs. Now, those three tactics I mentioned, they were downsizing. He was the layoff king. In his first few years as CEO, he fired some 100,000 or so employees at GE, even though the company was very profitable. He unleashed a wave of mass layoffs and factory closures, which destabilized the middle class. And he continued to do so with outsourcing and offshoring for his whole career. The second one was deal making. During those 20 years, he executed some 1,000 mergers and acquisitions. That's practically a big deal every single week. And in the process, he transformed GE from a very concentrated, very sort of discrete manufacturing company, an industrial company, into this sprawling conglomerate that had large operations in media, finance, and more. And the third one was financialization. He used this entity known as GE Capital, which was originally just a small division inside the company that was really used to help people afford GE products and services and turned it into what was effectively an unregulated bank that was involved in all sorts of dubious financial products and ultimately led GE into real severe trouble when the financial crisis hit. So those are the tactics I identify that he used in his pursuit of shareholder value above all else. Yeah, interesting. You know, downsizing, deal-making, and financialization. You know, as I'm thinking about those, the common thread through all of those is kind of from when I think about this from a cognitive perspective, it's it's taking the human out, it's taking the human element out and thinking conceptually about everything. So you're you're kind of dehumanizing in every sense of the word. And I'm and I'm thinking about in the brain the way there's a network for thinking about people, which is the, the default motor network, it's more central in the medial prefrontal. This network is used for thinking about yourself and others and how you all you know interconnect. And this network switches off when you think more about like your plans and goals and the future and all this stuff. And so people who are like very, very goal focused and conceptual thinkers end up activating this more lateral network in their brain like all day, every day and not spending much time thinking about, you know, how other people might feel. And I feel like he sort of, you know, went, he was sort of an outlier in that, in the, you know, sort of discounting the human element completely and going as far as you could into just conceptualizing and not caring whatsoever about people. And it, you know, creates this sort of value that it's good to imbalance, be imbalanced like that. And I think a lot of people, you know, role model him and said, oh, it's good that I'm massively goal focused and don't care about people. That's how I need to get ahead. And, you know, he, he sort of primed a generation of managers to not care about the humans is sort of the way I see it. But tell me more, like, you know, should companies, let's let's go there. Should companies have a soul? And what would that soul be made up of? Let's, you know, let's go there. Yeah. Well, listen, that that's sort of a turn of phrase that can mean a lot of different things to yeah. a lot of people. But what I'm referring to there is the fact, right? This is a fact. This is established history that in the post-war era, Those years from roughly, call it 1945 to the 70s, and call it 1981 when Welch took over GE, major U.S. corporations had a fundamentally different relationship with their employees than the one they do today. And what it looked like was an acceptance of their responsibility to really consider the well-being of all stakeholders and not just investors. And so in practice, what that meant was that companies like GE 
were proud to pay handsome wages, to offer employees really generous benefits, to keep people with the company until they retired and not have this transactional sense of employment, to take good care of their communities, and even to pay the government taxes. In the book, I cite the 1953 GE annual report, where the company proudly ticked off the fact that it had the highest payroll ever, and it was paying its suppliers so much money. And here's how much we paid in taxes. Oh, and by the way, the last thing they mentioned, yes, our investors made a modest return. And this was emblematic of the way many other companies approached their posture, sort of understood their relationship with society in these decades after World War II. You look at companies, whether it's IBM or Johnson & Johnson, the quintessential major American employers all understood that what was good for their companies was good for the country and vice versa. And so that's what I talk about when I mean a soul of corporate America. It was a recognition that the people matter, that the communities mattered. And all of that went out the window with Jack Welch. Yeah, that's interesting. Interesting. So, I mean, let's let's shift this to empathy. Something that we, you know we've been studying at our institute. We've been studying it for like three years, like really closely, and and trying to synthesize the research that cognitive scientists have been digging into for the last decade or two. But we've been synthesizing. So, you know, tell me about like how do you think about empathy and what what kind of impact did he have on empathy in you know across the swathe of, of corporate America. If I may digress, when I was with the Financial Times as a reporter about 10 years ago, I had the opportunity to interview Bernie Madoff, the Ponzi schemer, in prison. He and I sat down for hours, and he gave me one of his only interviews after he was arrested. And what I quickly discovered as I asked him about the consequences of his actions, did he feel remorse? Was he regretful that he had stolen $60 billion and ruined hundreds, thousands of lives? with these actions, he really had no empathy whatsoever. He could not express and connect with that sense that he had really caused suffering in other people. And it was, you know, that's the mark of a sociopath is the inability to sort of connect and empathize with other people. And in reading about Welch and talking to people who worked with him and knew him, he was not a Ponzi schemer, right? We can talk about his financial shenanigans. He was not a Ponzi schemer. But there was clearly some of that same lack of empathy, some of that unwillingness to truly account for, at a human level, the degree to which his actions, his decisions as CEO were really detrimental to the human lives of so many hundreds and thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of his employees who he laid off en masse year after year. And maybe that's, you know, necessary when you're making these sort of sweeping decisions. We can talk about compartmentalization and what leaders mm-hmm. need to do when they make these kind of decisions. But without a doubt, you know, Welch did not seem to demonstrate a whole lot of empathy for those individual employees who suffered the consequences of his really cutthroat management practices. It's interesting. You just remind me of some research that we don't talk about often, but I think is really important in this context and, and relates to empathy. So we did some research a few years ago on essentially what does what does a little bit of power do to your brain? Mm. And drawing on the good work of many, many different labs, we synthesized a way to think about this that sort of becomes a, a useful kind of rubric. So, so what we found is even a little bit of power has a very significant non-obvious effect in the brain in three ways. And when I say a little bit, I mean like 
get a cohort of people in a lab, get six people together, you know, tell them they're all in a group and then tell one person they're slightly in charge of the group, even like just, just even a little bit of power, right? Not like, oh, I'm, you know, king of the world, but even a little bit of power. And what we see, it's really interesting. A little bit of power does three things. Firstly, it actually makes you think a lot less about people as people. And it, so it switches down this people network and switches up your conceptual networks, right? And, and it's interesting. You actually have to do that in a way as a leader or as someone in power. You sort of have to be able to let go of every single person's, you know, hopes and dreams and goals in order to make some of the difficult decisions you need to as a leader, like even what project to prioritize. You can't care about everyone's feelings, you know, to get that done. So there's an adaptive value to sort of turning people into a straw person in your head as opposed to filling them out with all their you know, intentions and motivations, right? But what happens is, you know, when you have a lot of power, you're now not thinking about people at all. You're thinking about them as concepts. So you're literally conceptualizing people and, and taking all their emotions and feelings. So that's one thing that happens. The second thing that's interesting is that you become very optimistic, even with a little bit of power. And again, that's that is adaptive value because you've got to do difficult, scary things when you're in charge. And so you become more approach focused, less avoidance focused. And you actually don't notice potential risks anywhere near as much, right? And then the third thing that's interesting is that you lift up to higher levels of construal when you have even a little bit of power, again, just a little bit even. So in other words, you're thinking more abstractly, you're kind of not thinking about the details anywhere near as much. So now you think about someone like Welch and others who feel like they have a lot of power, you can imagine be really tempting to conceptualize people, not think of them as humans at all, not really care about the downside of things, and not really care about the details and sort of you end up in, in this sort of dark place. Any comments on that? You know, you know, what are your thoughts on that? That all sounds right on. And I mean, my mind immediately starts to go to not only corporate leaders, but world leaders and, you know, the men who, you know, move pieces around the strategy board when they're waging wars. And, uh, you know, we don't need only look at the headlines to understand that this, this sort of abstraction of human life is still a part of the human experience today in the worst possible ways. The other ways it makes me go is the recognition that I think there's something shifting in leadership today and in the discussion of what makes good leaders. And that's part of why I think this book has, has been met with, you know, a real willingness to have this conversation because today's best leaders, I would argue, make a point of humanizing their employees and really trying not to lose that sense of them as individuals. And I talk at the in the back half of the book about some companies who are looking for ways to, to continue to do this and to put their employees first. And yet, I think the the sort of paradigm I describe in the book and the, the Welch playbook and the degree to which his model of leadership and, and that abstraction that you just described is still just a fundamental part of the DNA of corporate America today and global capitalism. And we're seeing it again right now, you know, with the slightest fluctuations in the stock market, companies are laying off thousands of people again, just because they're a little afraid that they're, you know, might have a rough couple quarters ahead. It's the reminder that this Welchian worldview is deeply entrenched in the way companies do business today. And yet, I still think there's a, a glimmer of a willingness to change that paradigm that we're starting to see at all sorts of companies up and down the sort of the value chain. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a movement. And, and in some ways, I have Jack Welch to thank because, you know, my organization is like our slogan is literally, you know, making companies better for humans through science. Right. 
And they, you know, so we exist as an institute to help companies bring that human back yeah. in. I, I do think there's a movement that's sort of a reaction to what happened. I'm, I'm a big fan of the Just Capital people. Just Capital, uh, I don't know if you know them, the Research Institute, they're studying, you know, organizations that are just and looking at their performance. And, you know, they're showing that the more kind of humane and just a company is, actually, the better they do. And one of the best performing companies in the last decade has been Microsoft, who happens to be, you know, in the top few in terms of, you know, justice and all this. And they're, they're showing that actually being more human pays. And I think so you've got these kind of movements. You also have, obviously, this incredible consumer power that we have through being all connected, where, you know, an individual consumer can have a lot of impact on a company. An individual employee can have a lot of impact on a company. So there's a greater accountability where organizations, you know, leaders can't just be the tyrant and not be expected to be kind of called out in some ways. And so I think there's there's a lot of that sort of driving this issue. There's obviously a huge movement around diversity, equity, and inclusion that's happening. You know, you get some pushback in, in some quarters, but it's it's, you know, there is a big movement to make organizations, you know, kinder, more thoughtful. And what we're seeing is the companies that do that are attracting better talent. And I think that ultimately that is going to be a big motivator. They're getting a, you know, th there's this virtual cycle of, you know, if they're better for people and everyone says they're better for people, they're able to hire, you know, better talent, keep better talent, retain them, be more productive. So I think we're at this point where hopefully the system's starting to upward spiral a bit from a number of these different things. So it sounds like, I mean, are you hopeful as well about the future of empathy? Listen, I'm I'm a perennial optimist, so I try to stay hopeful, but I'm very sort of clear-eyed and realistic about just how swiftly this kind of paradigm shift can happen and how durable even the changes we might be seeing today really are. You know, you mentioned Microsoft, and it's important to note that it wasn't too long ago that when Steve Ballmer, instead of Satya Nadella, was running Microsoft, Steve Ballmer implemented stack ranking, a Jack Welch practice of automatically firing the bottom 10% of your employees right. every single year. And it caused absolute you know, strife within the Microsoft ranks. People were competing against one another. It absolutely sort of eroded the culture. And that was, you know, that was not very long ago in the history of Microsoft. So it's great that a company like Microsoft is, you know, ranking well on the just capital list. And I'm a right. fan of them. And I think they're doing important work and sort of trying to quantify what it means to be a really enlightened employer. Yeah. But the last couple of years, man, it's just been such a reminder of how fickle these changes can be. It was, remember, only in 2019 that the Business Roundtable redefined its purpose of a corporation and said, you know, it's no longer just about the profits. Now companies are really here for all stakeholders and we're going to put employees and the climate and everyone else first. And, you know, investors will get their share, but they're not going to be who we make our decisions for. Three months later, COVID hits mass layoffs, mass furloughs. And there was a study that showed that even the companies who signed the Business Roundtable pledge were more likely to institute mass layoffs in the wake of the pandemic than the companies who didn't. And so I think we just got to be real skeptical of how quickly we expect these companies okay. to move. I'm all for it. I think it's the right thing, but we just got to be very clear-eyed about how we measure our progress. You know, it's, it's it's interesting. We actually helped Microsoft get rid of that stack ranking process and put something in focused yeah. on just people having conversations. You know, we did that work with them that continues to this day. Let me ask, if you did that work, David, just give us a snapshot. What was it like when you went in there and you said, like, okay, we have to help you undo this? 
What was the effect of stack ranking in Microsoft? What does that do? This process of ranking your employees by best, middle, and poor performers and saying the poor performers, that bottom 10%, every year, no matter how well the company is doing, you're fired. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we actually did a lot of research on this. Our early work that really scaled was, was around transforming performance management. And in some ways, you know, we feel this connection with GE because they kind of started the forced ranking and also the forced distribution, you know, sort of the same thing, but this this kind of, you know, you've got to have a certain percentage, you've got to let go of a certain number each year. You've got to have, you know, you can only have a limited number at the top. We did a ton of research over a decade on this and ended up advising not just Microsoft, but dozens of big organizations on kind of how to get rid of that sort of focus on the rating and the getting rid of people. The, the trouble is it feels right to have this single number, but, you know, there's this non-obvious cost where, you know, you're hiring 10,000 people who've all got an A or B their whole life, and you have to tell half of them that they've got actually a C or a D. And, you know, and, and it just, it's not just dehumanizing, it's creating a lot of unnecessary noise. And it was not obvious for a long time, unless you really track the data. So we ended up writing a piece called Kill Your Performance Ratings, which became kind of a really big, you know, widely shared piece on kind of rethinking the whole of performance management. A lot of our early success a decade ago came in that space. But the, the cliff note is people react really badly to being dehumanized. And, right. you know, having a plan like 10% out every year or 5% every year, you know, is really dehumanizing. Having a plan like you've got to have, you know, X percent in each category, really dehumanizing. And it, it affects people's sense of status, their sense of control or autonomy, their sense of fairness, right? They, they have competing goals with their boss rather than shared goals. So, you know, it yep. creates a threat in kind of four out of five things that matter to people. So, you know, that's really good what's going on. What do you think have been some of the biggest turning points, maybe positively, as we sort of swing towards more human organizations? And maybe you mentioned a couple, but what do you think some of the biggest turning points have been, say, in the last, you know, 20 years since, Jack? You know, where have we started to point in the right direction? I think the financial crisis of 2008 was really a watershed moment. It, I think, sort of gave lie to the line that corporate America and the bosses had been putting forth for so long that, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats. And if the stock market was going up, then everyone was going to be okay, right? We saw in those few months that year, the fact that lives across the world, financial well-beings were absolutely decimated, that governments for the most part, bailed out the corporations and effectively the executives while leaving individuals and homeowners holding the bag, and that there was zero accountability for the people who had made these decisions. And so I think, you know, listen, again, I'm careful not to give too much credit where it might not be due, but I think it was hard for CEOs and executives coming out of that experience to make the case with a straight face that the status quo was working and that everything was just honky-dory and the system was working fine. You know, it, it just clearly wasn't. So I think what we've seen, you know, CSR and ESG, you mentioned, stakeholder capitalism, whatever we want to call it, I think all of that is at some level a response to the global financial crisis. Yep. And listen, I think how we respond to the pandemic, and this story is not over yet, I think it was going to be really defining, right? Whether it's work from home, whether it's how we treat our lowest paid employees, these big fundamental questions about what the relationship is between employers and their workers, the pandemic has just brought it into focus in a way that I think is, we just haven't seen in our lifetimes, frankly. And I think yeah. companies, you know, through the labor shortage, through new work from home policies, 
through you know the the rising unionization efforts across the United States are being forced to really dig deep and try to understand what are their values, how do they want to show up when they interact with their employees, and that's going to have a whole sort of ripple effect of, of policy decisions that I you know I'm I'm eager to sort of watch and play out. Yeah, no, it's it's really interesting. Lots of different directions we can take the conversation. You know, the pandemic obviously you know created this absolute necessity to care more about your people because people were so you know exploding in their feelings. But we saw a kind of you know kind of more thoughtful leadership style emerge. Obviously, the George Floyd incident and the incredible racial crisis we've had has kind of forced people to you know take stock of others' feelings and you know incredibly deep feelings. But I think there's still this you know, this, this incredible goal focus in organizations that sometimes just overrides the people focus. And I, I think of those as two kind of sides of a seesaw, right? Goal focus and people focus. I wrote a piece for Fortune a couple of years ago about kind of how organizations fail and they, they've just become too goal focused and they, they forget about the people focus. So I think that's, you know, that's what's going on. I, I, I want to take this to, to empathy a little bit and sort of, you know, shift gears a little bit, have a bit of a conversation about kind of some of the research we've been doing and, and, you know, get your view on this as well. So, you know, we've been studying this question of, of how do you get more empathy in organizations? There's, you know, three data points here that I think kind of, you know, make you stop in your tracks a little bit. And this is, you know, this is last year, this is fairly recent. You know, only 25% of people think their organization is empathetic enough. That's not very many, right? People really want the organizations to be more empathetic. Right? And I think if you took that statistic in you know the 50s or 60s or 70s you probably see a much you know much different picture maybe it was not 100 maybe it was 50 maybe it was 60 maybe it was 70 but that's a quarter of people think empathy is sufficient there that's a problem right what's interesting is that the other two numbers 68% of CEOs fear a loss of respect if they show empathy mm. so they, they they kind of feel like i have to be very wealthian or people won't respect me and if i'm not hard driving you know, I won't be able to get my job done, right? I have to, you know, I have to be tough. And 70% say it's actually hard for them to demonstrate empathy at work. It's really interesting. Any, any comments on these statistics? Any any reflections there? Yeah, I mean, this is like, this is the story of our times. I, feel, I wish I had the, I would have used these numbers in my book if I had seen them because it, it speaks to this gap between what people need and want and what CEOs are willing to give. And, and I think that the question that this prompts in me is like, why, right? Why are CEOs so fearful? And why yeah. do they think it's hard for them to demonstrate empathy at work? And listen, people are going to write dissertations about the answers to those questions. But to me, you know, part of the answer is, gets to this question of incentives. And who is a CEO leading for? You know, who are they? You know, this this gets to sort of the agency theory of Jensen and Meckling, which I, I talk about in the book. And we don't have to go into all of this, but... There's a supposition that's sort of a default assumption in corporate America today that CEOs are essentially the agents of their shareholders and that they are working on behalf of shareholders and that their number one job is to make money for the people who own the stock of their companies. And from that perspective, that I think is to me, you know, some of this sort of root answer where the stockholders don't care if you show empathy, right? So why should I? But the employees, the people who are actually doing the work, showing up every day in your organization, they need to be humanized. They need yeah. to feel that connection. These are the numbers that need to move 
Yeah. We're going to get to a better kind of capitalism. I'm glad you agree. We have a hypothesis on why the gap is there and what to do about it. And our strong hypothesis is that they don't know how to build, they don't know how to show empathy. And so we started this research. One of the things we do as a research institute, we, we do lots of different types of research. We do, you know, we're synthesizing insights from neuroscience labs all the time, but we're also listening to organizations. And a question we ask organizations all the time is what's your biggest challenge right now? that you're investing in and like putting resources in, but not getting movement on. And Mm. about six, seven years ago, it was actually bias. And we ended up building a whole framework for bias. Right now it's actually empathy and it's been for about a year. So, Mm. so this, it's this interesting thing that it's actually an outlying gap. So empathy is this weird thing that is a much bigger gap than anything else. Like the next biggest challenge was, was significantly down. It's like the U S the U S is a huge outlier in terms of GDP the next one down is, you know, much smaller, everyone else. So, you know, empathy is a challenge, is a much bigger challenge than anything else right now. And it's interesting, it's, this is despite people being trained in it and everyone reading books in it and everyone supposedly knowing, you know, how to do it. So you might just say, well, it's a motivation problem and there's not enough will. And there is some pretty good research that when you motivate people differently, they can show more, more empathy. For example, there was a study done a few years ago that tackled the question, are women more empathetic than men? It turned out that if men were motivated the right way, they were just they were able to have as much empathy. So there wasn't a biological difference in their ability to show empathy, but it did require motivation, which is kind of fascinating. We could dig into that another time. But we think a part of the problem is that we've actually been taught empathy wrong. And we've been following this, actually started following this research over a decade ago, but we got really serious about it about three years ago. And we've had multiple researchers come in and brief us, and we've been doing a lot of thinking about this for for quite some time. And we've come to see that the common way of thinking about empathy might actually be creating part of the issue. And so I'll give you what we've been looking at. So empathy is sort of, you know, we always think of it as one thing. Actually, it turns out to be three things. And to address it and do better, we need to think about it as three things. Now, the first thing I'll say is we actually want to talk not about empathy, but about quality connections. Because when you're talking about, you know, goal-focused people and driven people, you know, CEOs or any leader, you're going to start to get them switching off even when you use the word empathy. But we think like the the essence of empathy is actually an accurate connection between two people where one person really understands the other accurately and, you know, information is shared and adaptive actions follow, right? But there's a lot of misunderstanding of people's feelings, intentions, goals, you know, all of that. So we saw it as three different stages, and there's really huge amount of research illustrating this. And the, the first stage of this is somewhat automatic. There's a mirror neuron component to it, but it's more than that. This first stage, which we call emotional, is literally sensing, you know, what someone feelings, is someone's feeling, but you don't necessarily understand it, right? So you can, you can, you know, you can look at someone while you're, you know, on your phone, and you might not notice what they're feeling. So you also have to kind of tune in, which is that first step. So you have to pay attention to what someone, you know, to you know, literally pay attention to someone's voice, you know, choice of words, facial cues, everything. But you, once you pay attention, once you tune in, you can really sense there's something up with that person, right? But you don't necessarily understand it. The real challenges happen in the cognitive stage. Now, we did some research on this called perspective taking. Sometimes this cognitive stage is called perspective taking. We published a piece of research on this a couple of years ago. And this is where you actually understand why someone is feeling a certain way. And what's really fascinating is that there's a bunch of biases that get in the way massively. 
and you know drawing from the seeds model in our in our work that there are there are three specific biases that have you try to understand someone and basically fail <laughs> and you know you try to understand someone and you end up only well you end up correlating your own experiences with them you end up jumping on to first impressions you end up believing your perceptions there's a whole bunch of biases that get in the way but there's something even more poignant than this what we found is that when you tell people to try to understand someone when you say hey you know put yourself in someone's shoes what happens is you actually become more confident that you understand people but not more accurate now i want to say this again because it's quite life changing when you really understand it when you tell people to try to have empathy when you tell people to you know try to understand what someone is feeling right what humans do is the way we cognitively process this is we literally imagine ourselves being them right the metaphor is putting yourself in someone's shoes right but you're putting yourself right you in their shoes there is no way with your working memory which can barely hold you know three or four chunks there is no way with our limited working memory we can actually imagine being that person all we can do is imagine ourselves being in their situation and what happens is the harder you try the more confident you get you will understand them but you actually don't get any more accurate it's crazy so the way we've been taught to have empathy is try to understand and our perspective on that is give that up don't try to understand at all actually ask questions and so the second stage of this is you know is inquire and the third stage of this I'll just go back you know rather than like try to understand them inquire the third stage of this is extend options now what we mean here is the third stage of empathy is doing something right so you pay attention you you understand someone's real motivations and then you try to help so empathy includes a helping component what happens with this helping component is people are usually at one end of the spectrum improperly one end of the spectrum is essentially oh you should do what exactly i did last time i had this problem and do this right and you get you know evangelical about your solution so you get overly prescriptive when you do that people react they become like oh you you know they they get an autonomy threat a status threat so either people are overly prescriptive you have to do this or they become too vague and say well you know how can i help which puts the the sort of effort back on the person you're trying to help to come up with ideas so we think the third stage is don't say how can i help don't tell people what to do say look here are a couple of ideas what do you think give people some autonomy in that process so so for us this is a you know it's a somewhat new framework for us we're starting to launch into organizations but essentially like you got to pay a lot of attention you've got to actually ask questions and you got to provide options and it's a really different way of thinking about empathy overall what's your reaction to this and, and you know what are your thoughts david it all makes sense to me i think that the challenge is for me i keep coming back to this word of incentives you know how, how do we get ceos of big corporations to actually focus and make decisions based on this how how do we get them to tune in how do we get them to inquire not easy yeah it's interesting so our bread and butter is trying to get or getting people who are very rational somewhat cynical very logical driven goal focused to care more about what you might call soft skills or people skills or human issues social issues right all around and you know one of the big things that we found is is like meet them where they are right like let's talk science and that's incredibly helpful but the other thing is to triangulate with something like to triangulate to something that leaders already want yeah. right rather than saying hey we want because otherwise people will hear it as oh you need to schedule more like 2 hour meetings with people to show that you care and no one has the time for that right right 
So, so you got to you got to sort of meet people where they are and say, look, what percentage of the time do you think people really understand you? And when you know when you say something, they go and do it. And they completely understand you. Right. What percent of the time do you say something? And people seem to have just gone off and done something completely different, right? And they're like, actually, that happens a lot. And what do you think about the other way? Well, you know, how often is it that you know there's a missed connection? Like we really don't understand each other, or even outside of you in your teams, how often do you see people misunderstanding each other yep. all the time, right? And so you know, we'll use a metaphor like you know, computers are ninety nine point nine 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 percent accurate. You know, if you send an incredibly complex PowerPoint around the world with really complex animation, sometimes the animations will be buggy, but everything else seems to get through. You know, like they're really good at sharing information. Humans are terrible. Humans are like 50, 60, 70% accurate at exactly what's in one person's head landing in the other person's head, right? And so, you know, so we'll say, look, you know, how do we increase the quality of connection between the humans? And, and, and how, you know, how do we increase the quality of connections between the humans, literally, so that information is shared more accurately? So that's one kind of, you know, I guess, you know, with them or what's in it for me that, that I think is, is really helpful. The other thing that we'll, we'll, we'll talk about is this is a big issue right now, you know, resilience, burnout, you know, people feeling exhausted. You know, when you ask people what's going on, a really common thing is my manager doesn't seem to care. My leaders in the business don't seem to have an interest in what's going on. My manager doesn't seem to care. And so there's a, there's a real issue with, you know, with retention and engagement, particularly about retention, because people feeling like, you know, the company doesn't care whatsoever. So I think there's a, I think there's a real motivation right now in the form of kind of culture and efficiency and productivity to say, you know, we need to do some work on just literally how well people connect, particularly in a virtual world, particularly when we're actually not with each other very often. We kind of need to work harder on this. Yeah. Any thoughts from from your side, David? What's uh, what's coming up for you? Well, listen, I, I I think I'm reminded of all these news stories we've seen in the last few months about CEOs firing their, you know, large swaths of their team and mass over Zoom and just the absolute lack of human experience in that. And, you know, if there is a silver lining, I don't know if we can call it that, the degree to which people have called that out as an example of what not to do. I think is, is, is again, sort of a, a suggestion that maybe there's a, a change in the air. Maybe there's something shifting the zeitgeist where people at least recognize that that's not appropriate. I think the bigger question is just what I keep coming back to is like, how do we actually move the needle? You know, what is it going to take for a CEO to recognize that that shouldn't be the way that we do it? I just learned of a friend yesterday who, you know, essentially had this experience just like that. You know, they were called onto a Zoom meeting and told, you no longer work for this company. Your email and phone are locked. Thank you for your service. And it's like, I've been with this company for years and years and years, and this is how you're treating me. And so I don't know what the answer is. And I try to, you know, talk about policy solutions and different ways you can actually move the needle. But I don't know that there's a policy solution that can prevent that kind of, you know, sort of brutal management tactic from actually taking place. You know, if anything, I think it's got to be like public shaming and and a recognition and that those kind of companies are not ones that people are going to want to work for. But beyond that, it's really tough, tough to change that kind of behavior. Yeah, I think there's these feedback loops now that we never had before that are kind of starting to work. Like companies that do this do get shamed like really quickly. Yeah. I mean, the, the cycle there is fast, you know. Yeah. I mean, we all heard about one manager at Apple that left because he was told he had to go back to the office, you know. Like the, the, the feedback cycle is fast and kind of brutal when companies yep. do these 
you know, these inhumane things. So, so I'm, I'm optimistic that there's some, there's some kind of inbuilt motivations at the moment to do more human things. But I also think, you know, there's two things coming up for me. One is it does take courage, right? So I have a team of 200 people. I, I don't have classic shareholders or investors where, you know, mm. family owned and held, but I can see the dynamic. Like if I had to re- report to, you know, shareholders all the time, you know, every quarter, you know, literally I can imagine now having to make this trade-off all the time of, you know, I'm going to care more about people. We're going to, you know, invest a little bit more in them versus we're going to get our profit number. And if you just care about the profit number, you're going to keep prioritizing that and keep deprioritizing the people because you do have to make some binary decisions now and then, right? And so at NLI, you know, we've, we've made a decision to develop more regenerative practices, which is even beyond sustainable. So we want our people practices to have folks better every year as opposed to just, you know, sustainable. So we want to we want to you know, model and, and, and copy the principles of regenerative practices from agriculture and the built environment and say, you know, doing that. But, ha- but that actually costs money at times. doesn't always, but it, it costs money. So it, it takes some courage, I think. And one of the things I've noticed is that CEOs are likely to do things when other companies do them. You know, we were talking with some banking people recently and, you know, we said, what are you doing about? you know, Roe v. Wade, they said, well, we're literally watching what, you know, City and JP are doing, and we're going to do that. So I think part of it is sort of, they watch their peers, and people don't want to be, you know, left out of that. And that turns out to be one of the biggest motivators. People do things because everyone else is doing it. That's one of the biggest motivators. The other thing I think, and this is just maybe really practical, is we need to make it easy to be more empathetic. We need to make it easy to do what's right. You know, it's it's easier right now to be goal focused. Goal focused is more tangible, more concrete, so it's easier to think about. So, how do we make it more tangible, more concrete, to be slightly empathetic? And you know, what's involved in that? And so, for us, it's like let's put extremely simple like guides at the point of use of you know in people's technology. Let's have like little nudges that remind people of you know better ways of having empathy. Let's have this kind of stuff you know, pop up right when you need it. So we're sort of imagining different ways of making this stuff easier so that people build habits, you know, across the board. That's sort of where we're going. But what, what you don't want is people pretending to have empathy on one level. As well. Right. You don't want folks sort of having empathy because they're being told to have empathy. So tell me, you know, last couple of minutes, tell me your hope for the future as you finish writing the book and as you're out there talking about it. What's your hope for the future as we move past the Jack Welch era, you know, coming back to the book? What's your hope for the future about kind of leadership now and leadership going forward? What are you hopeful about? Yeah, I, I hope that the people leading our biggest companies and our organizations really are able to answer the question of who are they leading for? You know, are they leading for themselves and their own egos and their sense of accomplishment? Are they leading for their investors and their shareholders? Or are they leading for this much broader constituency of the people who work for their organization, the families of those people, the communities that all those people live in, as well as themselves and their shareholders and everyone else? And I think absent that crucial component, which is the people in the heart of these companies and the people in the communities where they live, it's just going to be more of the same. So I've been heartened over the last month since the book came out to see the reception. People want to have this conversation because there is this recognition. You go around, you look at the headlines, you walk the streets of a city, just about any city in the country. And the problems are just so glaring for us to see right now. And part of that solution, part of the 
work of repairing this damage that this model of leadership, that this model of capitalism has inflicted on our society over the past half century starts with CEOs rethinking who they're working for. If we're just working for the Wall Street analysts who want a certain number at the end of the quarter, it's going to be just the same old story. If we can start to rethink who we're doing all this for, what the incentive structures are, and how we reward and define great leadership, I got a glimmer of hope that maybe things will get better. Yeah, no, that's great, David. I, you know, David, I was at I was at Harvard Business School a few years ago. There was a, an ethics symposium, a two-day conference about ethics in business schools, and Nita Noria was there, who was the, 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 the head of HBS at the time. And he said something that's always stuck with me. He said, you know, we get these amazing kids, you know, they get kids in there, you know, who have these really good values, and we spend several years beating them out of them. Right. And I, I think the business school, you know, changing the way we think about value in business schools, changing the way, you know, that we teach in business schools is a piece of it, you know, the, the thinking more holistically about what to value and how to value it. And ironically, all the data is showing that the more you care about humans, actually, the more successful your company might be. Yeah. So it's getting people to think more holistically about these things and don't just be goal focused, but be goal focused and people focused, right? Don't be one or the other completely yep. stuck, right? You know, integrate both. But thank you so much for being here. Appreciate it a lot. Take care of yourself, David. Bye-bye. Thanks, David. Thanks, everyone. Your Brain at Work Live is produced by the Neuroleadership Institute. You can help us make organizations more human by rating, reviewing, and subscribing wherever you listen to your podcast. Our producers are Matt Holodak, Mary Kelly, and me, Shelby Wilburn. Original music is by Grant Zubritsky, and logo design is by Catchware. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week. Thank you.